Hey, Darren, have you been watching us on uh, the Electric Now app? I have. I haven't recently because I, I, I watch you pretty much every week when we're doing these things. But Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, you know what I love about it's, the Electric Now app? It's better it's on so video. It's so easy to use. It's, it's, it's better really on video. Easy. Download the it. app and you watch us. That's all there is to it. It's so and, simple. And a lot of other cool stuff, too. You go to the app store. It says Electric Now. You download it. And then... Press, in the United States, press the button, and there it is. There it is, and you can choose. You can bookmark it. There's plenty of other movies and TV show to enjoy, and episodes of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts. So why wait? Download the Electric Now app and start enjoying us anytime. Hello, this is not Gene Roddenberry, but uh, if I was around, I would definitely be listening to Inglorious Trexperts, the new podcast from the people who brought you the 4:30 movie. Check it out, 430movie.com. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Burn, baby, burn, and welcome back to Disco Nights, where we celebrate all things Star Trek and our love for Star Trek Discovery. And we are burning up for over 50 years with curiosity about the Guardian of Forever. Now, we are here to talk about that and more today, and I am so excited to have several special guests and our incredible co-host, Ryan Britt. He's the author of the books, Luke Skywalker Can't Read, from 2015 Plume Books, and the forthcoming book, Phasers on Stun, a nonfiction book on how Star Trek has changed the world. He has words written on Sci-Fi Wire, Den of Geek, Inverse Vulture, and StarTrek.com. Ryan Britt. Hello, Chase. Um, I want to say, behold, we're talking about The Guardian of Forever. I've been making jokes using the word behold for about two weeks straight. Um, I'm really excited um, for this particular panel. I've got, we've got a lot of fantastic Star Trek experts um, and our wonderful uh, Disco Knights team here. I first want to introduce my good friend, David Mack. Uh, David Mack is the award-winning and New York Times bestselling author of 36 novels of science fiction, fantasy, and adventure, including the Star Trek Destiny and Cold Equation trilogies. His writing credits span several media, including television, four episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, short fiction, and comic books. Mac presently works as the consultant on two television series, Star Trek Lower Decks, produced by Mike McMahon, and Star Trek Prodigy, being produced for Nickelodeon by Dan Hageman and Kevin Hageman. Mac resides in New York City, is a wonderful man. Uh, He just uh, had two books I want to shout out that came out this year, Star Trek More Beautiful Than Death, uh, which is one of the Kelvin Universe uh, books. You can imagine uh, Chris Pine's uh, Baby Blue Eyes while you're reading that particular novel, and The Shadow Commission Dark Arts Book 3, uh, I also just think that David's a wonderful author and his Star Trek novels are wonderful. I remember texting you, David, uh, in 2017, before Star Trek Discovery came out, uh, reading your Star Trek Discovery novel, Desperate Hours, and just making me feel like a kid again. He's a wonderful writer. I can't wait to talk about The Guardian Forever with him. We also have with us, if Yay! it couldn't get bigger than that, uh, Anthony Pascal, who is the founder and editor-in-chief of TrekMovie.com, the biggest Star Trek fan site and co-host of the All Access Star Trek podcast. Uh, If you read Star Trek news online, you have read articles either written by Anthony or edited by him. He is the expert journalist um, out there uh, covering all things new in Trek, and I have relied on his articles so many times as a journalist and a writer, and uh, his occasional phone calls and his wonderful um, work in the fan community, uh, particularly this year uh, during the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, He's just a wonderful, wonderful guy. So it's great to have him. Uh, We also have with us a Disco Nights regular, uh, Heather Ray. Uh, Heather is the founder of Fans Give Back and a a not-for-profit passion project dedicated to helping fans in need. You know her online on Twitter as BatlifBabe, one of the most prominent and kindest uh, Star Trek fans out there. 
we love her insight uh, and we, we love her big, big heart. Uh, finally, my yeah. co-host is, uh, as you know, uh, is Chase Masterson, who is best known for her five years on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Her TV and film roles include The Flash, General Hospital, ER, and numerous roles on sci-fi. Features include the sci-fi noir Yesterday Was a Lie and leads in the upcoming Manipulated and Skipping Stones. She has a title role in the Doctor Who Big Finish spinoff Vienna, currently in season four. She has spoken at TED, Google HQ, and the United Nations about the nonprofit she founded using TV and film to teach empathy. And that is, of course, the Pop Culture Hero Coalition. And for those of you watching at home on the Electric Now video app, I'm wearing one of the Be Kind shirts from the Pop Culture Hero Coalition. And I Thank you. encourage you to check all of that out. Uh, Chase, uh, what do we think about... Um, going back through the guardian of forever let's talk about this well thank you so much and i i wish the guardian of forever was so stunningly attired as you ryan Britt. um but we have we have a stunningly dressed guardian of forever and that is carl and what a new and unexpected twist this is to see the guardian of forever in human form or or uh you know looks like human form I am mostly interested in the fan response to The Guardian of Forever. This has been such an emotional issue for so long uh, because the the episode, obviously, uh, Sitting on the Edge of Forever is perhaps the best loved episode of all of Star Trek. And Anthony, I want to start with you and ask you about your experience and what you have seen and heard of of fan response to this issue, to the Guardian of Forever, uh, City on the Edge of Forever, and why this rings so strongly in in fans' hearts. Well, I mean, it's it's arguably the best episode, City on the Edge of Forever, of Star Trek. So, and the Guardian of Forever is an iconic character or entity, I guess, from that episode. So. It's 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 iconic to bring it into Star Trek Discovery. I know they've wanted to do it for a while. And I think a lot of fans thought it was really cool how it was done. It was um, yeah. Carl was introduced as a mysterious character in one episode and then revealed in the second episode. We actually did one of those theory articles where we kind of said Carl's either going to be Q or the Guardian, but we think it's the Guardian because, of, you know, all the clues they left. Mm. And I think, you know, that, that was cool, but some fans, I guess the purists, um, you know, don't buy into, you know, the guardian being different than it was before. Um, but I think a lot of fans thought it was a cool idea. They liked the visual reveal. And uh, so I think most are on board, certainly most discovery fans are on board for it for sure yeah you know anthony i made a joke in an article i did for den of geek about in, in terra firma part one about it potentially being the guardian of forever and i was actually shocked uh, to see that i was right and that that theory article on trekmovie.com was correct as well so i was i was blown away um, personally um heather how did you feel about the reveal uh... Yeah, so City on the Edge is definitely one of my favorites, of, if not my favorite TOS episode. Uh, and that's because it just stands out on its own um, and because Edith Keeler is amazing uh, goals there. But yeah, I kind of squealed and got really excited when he was like, I am the guardian of forever. Like, that might be campy to some people, but that just was really fun and cool to me. Um, and it looked neat. And I liked that they gave enough information to explain like kind of who or what the guardian was so that it wasn't like people who hadn't seen TOS or who hadn't seen it in forever still knew it still kind of made sense. They weren't left like, who the heck is this person? And that happens a lot um, with, with fan stuff like this sometimes, like if you don't see everything, like you miss out. And so I'm glad that that didn't seem to be the case this time. Yeah. That's we true. should note that the um, voice sample that Heather is referring to, um, the I Am the Guardian of Forever, was uh, a sample of the actor Bart LaRue, I believe that that's the pronunciation, uh, who played the voice in Star Trek, the original series. And he also played a few other voices. I just watched The Squire of Gothos the other day in which he played Trelane's father. Um, and then the new yeah. Guardian of Forever, Carl, is played by an actor named Paul Goliefoyle. Um, But David, you know, <laughs> we were talking about how 
Um, fans of Anthony said the fans have wanted this for a while. Uh, Chase and Heather are pointing out correctly that this is a big deal. But you know, you've written Star Trek novels, and you're very steeped in all of that. Mm-hmm. The Guardian of Forever has been coming back a lot in non-screen canon. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, first of all, it's only had to date three appearances in in the canon. Uh, being the original City on the Edge of Forever. It appeared again in the animated series yesteryear. And then we have this third appearance now in Discovery. But in the books, it has appeared, as far as I can tell, in at least 15 official Star Trek novels. It has appeared in seven officially licensed pieces of uh, Star Trek short fiction. It's been in at least five comic books. And it's been used, I think, at least five times, either in role-playing game modules or in adventure scenarios for Star Trek uh, Online. So it has made numerous appearances and has featured very prominently in uh, many works. Uh, Of course, I think a lot of them happened back in the 90s, uh, and you haven't seen as many since around 2000. That was really the last sort of prominent usage was... Uh, by Gar and Judy Reeve Stevens in their DS9 trilogy, Millennium. And they used it in, a, in their third book of the trilogy called The War of the Prophets. Uh, before that, its most prominent use in Star Trek literature was by Peter David, who used it as the central uh, gimmick uh, at his novel, Imzadi, which involved time travel and alternate realities and sort of explored the romance between young Riker and Troy and posited a future where Troy had died under mysterious circumstances. And so old Riker has to go back and fix what went wrong with the past. Uh, It's really a beautiful novel, uh, very well done. And it's a brilliant use of the Guardian. And then the most recent attempt at the use of the Guardian in fiction was by David R. George III. Uh, He used it in 2006 for his trilogy, uh, Star Trek Crucible. Uh, He used it in at least two of the books. He used it in McCoy, Provenance of Shadows, and Spock, The Fire and the Rose. And that actually led to a lawsuit uh, where Harlan Ellison sued Simon & Schuster, claiming that he had retained certain separated rights to The Guardian. uh, And he was looking to, you know, get injunctions against the publication of the book, and he was looking for damages. How that all shook out, no one really knows. The case settled uh, under closed seal. So the terms of the settlement have never been made public. Simon and Schuster won't talk about it. The Ellison estate never talked about it. It's curious that he never brought suit against any other. <laughs> I was going to say, news. yeah, I was going to say like, it's, <laughs> it's a little hard to tell whether he yeah. just, you know, had an ax to grind with David R. George the third, or if it was just that he felt it was too prominent, but of course, it was very prominent, prominent in, in Zotti. It's on the cover. Yeah. It's on the cover, and yeah. it was very prominent in War of the Prophets and yeah. been prominently used elsewhere. I think it may have had something to do with the fact that he had recently made a deal with IDW to Excuse do me. a new graphic novel adaptation of his original teleplay for City on the Edge of Forever, the first draft, which differed greatly from the eventual televised version, which went through many rewrites for budgetary reasons. Uh, as well as plot reasons and character reasons. So it may be that he was just looking to protect his property a little more aggressively at the end. Um, But, you know, it's neither here nor there. You don't have to aggressively protect copyright. It's not like trademark. There was a a rumor when the J.J. Abrams first movie was being made, I guess 2007, that The Guardian was going to be involved, and he threatened to sue Paramount. And I ran into Harlan Ellison in the WGA strike line. When was that strike, David? 2007. Yeah, seven. Yeah. And uh, he he told me that he talked to Paramount and, uh, you know, that, that you know he owns these characters and they're going to have to pay him, but he talked to them and it was all lies. And then he went off about how, you know, the media are all liars and blah, blah, blah. It was, you know, he's, yeah. he was so, yeah. he was such a great, crazy, fun Harlan. Yeah, he, he was a cantankerous, uh, cantankerous guy, Uncle Harlan. I mean, the funny thing about that, I think that, you know, in talking about, you know, Harlan Ellison, you always have to talk about his litigious nature. I myself feel that a phone call from him that ended up being hilarious uh, when I worked at Tor.com. But, um, it, you know, it, is that what's funny is that the Guardian Forever in the episode as aired, 
um, is nothing like the Guardian of Forever's, the multiple Guardian of Forever's in his original script. I participated in Skyboat Media's um, audiobook uh, version of that script before the IDW mm -hmm. one came out. I did a few like uh, essays for them about that. And so what's funny to me about Carl is that if you're a purist, Car the pers a, a personified Guardian of Forever is actually closer, oddly, to so Ellison's original teleplay. Right, yeah. you know, so I think that's sort of like, <laughs> that kind of cracks me up, personally. Uh, but, from, you know, it's funny, I think about it, I look at it as a tie-in writer. I say, if I had to explain in a novel, how did we get from the Guardian as we saw it in uh, original series and animated series to what we saw in Discovery? Well, we could say that, you know, the Guardian had been alone for millions of years. It says, you know, I've waited millions of years for a question. And now suddenly over the last thousand years, it has probably been in nonstop contact with, you know, researchers from the Federation, human and Dorian. It's like a Vulcan. celebrity. So it's AI probably learns. It learns and it eventually develops better ways of interacting with the people that it works with. So it was probably set up to work one way and then it had millions of years of being offline. And now suddenly, if over a thousand years of long interaction with Federation researchers, it probably developed the persona of Carl uh, because it just made it easier to interact with the people who wanted to interact with it. So I want to mention, we think, speaking of Carl, I want to get everyone's thoughts, Chase and Heather, and everyone's thoughts on a few details that I gleaned from this episode by talking to uh, this episode, uh, Terra Firma Part 2 of Star Trek Discovery Season 3, uh, was written by Bo Yankin, uh, Erica Lipalt, and Kalinda Vasquez. Um, and I interviewed them briefly for Inverse.com, and they told me that the reason why the new Guardian of Forever took on the moniker of Carl was because they were inspired by Carl Sagan. Um, and that uh, Alex Kurtzman uh, and uh, Michelle Paradise had encouraged the a Carl Sagan connection. Uh, there, uh, which I thought was interesting. But on top of that, they also told me that one version of this episode, they considered other options. They considered not it not being the Guardian of Forever. They considered it being a temporal weapon left over from the temporal Cold War that would cure Giorgio of her temporal sickness. They considered a cue at one point, but that this is what they landed on. But they also told me that there was a version of this where the Guardian of Forever had Michael Burnham and uh, Giorgio cook an apple pie together. Um, and then that was going to be like this, like epiphany where they had, like they shared a perfect day baking together. So I just wanted to get everyone's reactions to that of whether or not we missed out on a baking episode. I don't know, Heather, does, would that have been appealing? No, no, <laughs> no. Oh, I don't know. Know. with five part harmony. Tony likes it. What Tony, go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, the whole episode was essentially a test, right? So why not a baking challenge? You know, the Great British Bake Off is a big show, you know. So maybe, you know, maybe baking the perfect pie proves that she's no longer evil. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, didn't, they didn't elaborate. Um, go ahead. because yeah, evil Sorry. people can't bake pies. You know, there was never an evil stepmother in Disney who baked something evil into a pie. That never happened. Yeah, The Masked Singer is also a big show, but that doesn't mean that we want everyone dressed like Linus, like doing a tune. I mean, just no. There's a very fine line, not a fine line, there's a very thick line, actually, between schlocky, cheesy, sweet, and reality. And, I, like, in what universe does Burnham bake? Um, or does... Yeah, you know, Michelle Yo bake. It's just not they're not bakers. They're just not. I, I think that I think yeah. that I appreciated the detail because it reminded me of, you know, being um I'll date myself slightly here, I, of being uh, you know, about thirteen years old and seeing Star Trek Generations in the theater and being a little blown away that the pivotal meeting between Kirk and Picard was, you know, cooking. Um, you know, in that particular film. So I was delighted by, by, by that, um, that small um, detail. Um, Heather, how did you feel sort of like about the um, sort of implications that, you know, with fandom of like that this is back on the table? Like, do you think this was right amount of nostalgia, too much nostalgia? Uh, um, I think... 
I think it worked and I want to leave it there. I'm just not a big fan of the mirror universe in general, and I'm not a big fan of it in discovery. Having said that, I'm still very positive and love a lot about it, but, um, and Giorgio in particular, like, I think with what they were doing there, you know, they're trying to talk about that, you know, who is redeemable and Chase and I had some tweets about this back and forth, but it's like, yeah. you know, who, who determines who is worthy for redemption? Is that something that can be? Uh, because the the big discussion has been that we did not see Amir Giorgio be redeemed enough to be celebrated when she was gone. Um, exactly. And so I, yeah. She and I think it's... I mean, really. She was mean and she spilled soup on Tilly. Nothing <laughs> redeems that. I Hollywood think has never been good at redemption. I mean, look at Vader. He murdered children, destroyed entire planets, enslaved a galaxy. And what redeems him? He threw an old man down a reactor shaft to save his own son. I'm sorry, that does not strike me as overly noble. That that does not clear your books of all no. your sins. No. She's, yeah. definitely, she's definitely not redeemed. The question is, is she redeemable? And is she on a redemption arc? And what they were trying to show is that she's seen a better way, that she has regrets and that's but I, I do agree that final scene of everyone kind of talking about how great she was was over the top and I feel like the writers and the actors are too often conflating how much they love and worship and respect Michelle Yeoh with the character of Mir Giorgio and because when you talk to them about Michelle Yeoh they're like oh it's you know it's just an honor to work with the legend and so they were saying goodbye to Michelle, but we didn't need to see that on screen, you know, wasn't she great? Especially because there were already two goodbyes. We had a great goodbye in the first part with Saru saying goodbye to Georgia, Saru and um, Tilly, right? And that was kind of a sweet little scene, and it was very honest, and I thought organic. And then you had a nice goodbye with Michael. So we didn't need the third yeah, that's a lot of goodbyes for someone we don't like. Yeah, so, yeah. but but I, I, I think, you know, but the, that that's kind of, they need to set up the new show, fine. So, yeah, they need yeah. to... Yeah, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to talk about that. Sorry, go ahead, Tony. No, 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 let's, yeah. you know, if you want to talk about that, let's talk about that. Right, well, I guess, that I, David, yeah, you might have knowledge here because you work with these folks a little bit, so you can recuse yourself a bit if you want. If I uh, have but, to claim NDA, I'll claim Yeah, <laughs> but um, I did wonder if there were any thoughts, Tony, Heather, like sort of what, I personally feel like they're setting up a present day show that Michelle Yeoh, Giorgio will emerge in present day earth because when where does the mirror universe and the prime universe diverge you know we know it can't be after 2063 because that's when zephyr cochran and the mirror universe you well know, I, I, you have to listen very closely to what he says and he's not saying when they diverge but when you know he's not saying that the events diverge he's saying that the universes are moving farther right. apart in the multiverse and therefore I, I, it's becoming harder to bridge the distance between them I, I think what he's saying is in the 32nd century, they're so far apart that you can't survive. But in the 23rd century, I think the 23rd mirror universe and prime universes are close enough as we've seen that she could survive in the 22nd through 24th. So she could, so I, I don't think they're setting up a Georgia's running around they're not going to do galactica 1980 i was saying assignment earth <laughs> i was i was rereading i was rereading an interview no. um uh because no, that wouldn't that wouldn't tie in at all for that you'd have to reestablish aegis you'd have to establish the supervisors uh, i don't mean literally assignment earth i mean an assignment earth flavor i mean i don't mean doing literally assignment no, earth. for those uh, gary seven uh episode of star trek original series where we established that there are aliens living on earth uh, supervising things. David, for which I actually tried to write a, a, a pilot in the 90s uh, to revive it, uh, working with John Ordover. He and I actually wrote a, a series Bible and uh, a pilot script trying to persuade Paramount to bring back Assignment Earth. Well, uh, it didn't happen. <laughs> the only reason why I mention it is because it, it was the first attempt back in the day of mm -hmm. a Star Trek spinoff. 
Mm. Um, <laughs> backdoor pilot. That Art Art Wallace wrote the episode with Gene Roddenberry's approval, where the idea that they would do a um, a spinoff of the original series with Terry Gar. Um, it, it helped me out. The actor who plays Gary Seven, off the top of my head, I can't remember his name. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> that's okay. I forget. All of us can't. I'll, I will look it up <laughs> while we're while we're online. But I remember Terry Gar because she's fantastic and hilariously funny in that episode. Um, but that. That that was an original idea for a spinoff series of the Charles original series. So Robert Lansing played Gary Seven uh, in Assignment Earth, which was uh, in the original series. But yeah, I I don't know. I felt for some reason I feel strongly about this theory. So I'll I'll, I'll play some some bets. I'll put some quat lose on this uh, with with you folks yeah, later. It's, well, it's, I think it's, it's probably it's more likely possible. they're they just wanted to engineer bringing her back to the twenty third or twenty fourth century so they can do a section thirty. Well, I, I guess the the big question is: Is Carl a? I really liked Carl. Yes. And what's not and it, in a way, even though it was cool that he's the guardian forever, I feel like that almost limited the character because I thought he was cooler as a mysterious new character. And even though it's great for Discovery to grab and connect to the original series and other shows. The whole point of going to the 32nd century was to do new things. And Star Trek is rife with godlike, cool, weird characters. And why not have Discovery create their own super being character that could do interesting things? And maybe Carl could start showing up on all of the shows, all of the Kurtzman-verse shows, and maybe Carl plays a role in this other show and he could pop people from time to time. And, you know, if, you know, if he's the guardian of forever as well, fine. I guess what I, what I'm worried about is that the guardian has to be fixed to a certain location now. No, it doesn't. Like, the, that's like the whole point of this is that he moves I don't around. think so. No, no, no but I, I mean, I mean, within time, like it would be cool if Carl could be on the new show. You know that 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 they yeah, don't well, consider him. I think that's the whole point Guardian of forever. the Guardian is that he is imminent and in, in, he is everywhere. He is all things. He can, you know, is he man? Is he machine? It, it, it's beyond our comprehension, as Spock was told. I mean, it's. I think there's a lot of room to put him in there. Right, and I mean, I'm, I'm afraid that we won't. I'm sitting like, on the I'm edge. You said I'm my own won't. beginning and my own end. I'm my own Alpha and Omega. Right. Yeah, you know, and David, right. I told you, you know, I moved from New York uh, to Portland, so I'm nowhere near my original, you know, coordinates. You know, so I mean, people can people can change. I don't know. I would, Anthony, I would love to see a Carl in the new show, and maybe they just never need to mention <laughs> that he was the Guardian of Forever. I think that that would, you know, that would probably work. I, I could see it happening, like kind of like a quantum leap. He becomes like Al from Quantum yeah. Leap, and he jumps well, in mean, and talks I mean, to Giorgio. I, I don't know. <laughs> I think I I feel like. When I think he would have been better as a Q, even though being the guardian is better for them to make a cool announcement, I guess, and do the visual. I feel like what they did is they looked at the guardian forever and they said, that's a great sci-fi concept, but they wanted to create an interesting character who has a sense of humor and has, a, has, has agency the thing about the Guardian is the Guardian really didn't have much agency. He just kind of did what you asked him to do. He was just there. I mean, he was just he, there, and he and and he rotated. He couldn't even change the speed at which he rotated time through it. You know, he was he was essentially an AI. And Carl was an interesting character. You know, we could say, well, he evolved, but it's like he did a lot of evolving in a thousand years. Um, even though he was, he literally said, "I cannot change," and was billions of years old. So I just feel like he would have been better to, they wanted a, a Q-like character. You know, I don't see why they needed to use the Guardian of Forever, but it doesn't really cool. But it doesn't really matter. It is cool. Now, yeah. Now we're, now we're here. We're, it's we're like, why would you drive here. a classic Cadillac when you can have a brand new Camaro? Well, because a classic <laughs> Caddy is cool. Well, I think, I think, I think having person. him be, I think having him be a Q is just as cool as being a guardian. Well, it's but funny that you mention that because in the books, uh, there was a theory put forth, I think, by Greg Cox in his, uh, a couple of his novels, Love Q Space Greg. and Q-Zone, that the Q were the uh, species that created the Guardian of Forever billions of years ago before they evolved into their non-corporeal state. So right. there was, at least in the books, uh, the linkage between the Q and the Guardian. 
something and the, that I and the cue wouldn't have gotten Giorgio back in into the mirror universe or forward into wherever she's going. I mean, this was a plot device to change her coordinates, right? Well, I mean, although no, actually, because if you look at Tapestry in TNG, that's exactly what Q did to yeah. Picard. He sent him back to an alternative version of his own past to teach him a lesson about the choices he'd made as a young man and why those choices informed the man he became and what would happen but would that if he only pulled a wonderful past? life. Yeah. It, no, it was an alternate version of the past. Okay. It was an alternate version of the past. Essentially, it's it, the same story structure as what we just saw done in Terra Firma. Part, part one and part two, that yeah, was TNG okay, tapestry. Yeah, I get that, yeah. Okay. It, was, essentially, it yeah. was essentially a test to, for her to go over a regret, which is why when I did that theory article, I said, it's either a Q or the Guardian. All the evidence points to the Guardian, but it actually works better if it's a Q because it makes more sense. But mm. it, doesn't it doesn't matter now. What they did is they made a kind of hybrid character in Carl, someone who can take you on adventures and give you a test. I mean, yeah. The, you know, the there's a novel is, waiting to happen. Maybe Carl is because is somebody fused a cue with the Guardian. <laughs> David, why, why does, why does Carl, books? Always. The thing, the thing that is curious about Carl is he has a will. He has opinions. He tests you. And I guess they're saying something happened during the Temporal Wars that pissed him off. So now you can't just walk, because in the old days, you could just walk up and say, hey, I want to go back and see the pyramids. And he's like, sure, go on through. Um, and now he won't let you do that anymore. Um, you've got to go through one of his tests. And David, I'm curious what you think. When Georgia went back to the Mirror Universe in mm -hmm. the 23rd century, mm -hmm. was that like Tapestry or Yesterday's Enterprise? Was it just a complete self-contained universe well, or did she go back to, to i don't want to interrupt david tony but i asked this question of the writers directly i okay. asked i asked well, eric uh, and bowie and uh um and kalinda this exact question i asked them whether or not there was, was an alternate universe and this is exactly what they told me they said the best way to think of this version of the mirror universe we see in this episode is a special scenario created by the guardian here forever Carl says he has to weigh Giorgio's case. Is she worthy of using the time port or something that should not be done lightly to cure herself? Then, uh, whether this mirror universe creates an alternate timeline and an alternate prime universe to go with it, or whether it's a pocket timeline that exists independently or something else our human brains can't even comprehend, only Carl can't say or won't say. That is what they told me. So they basically said, it is kind of like tapestry, that it's a special scenario, but they also said that, that it's possible that it could have created an alternate mirror universe, because of course, if- well, If you look at quantum so, branching theory, all the possibilities right. that can happen so, do happen. So this would have been a, create an alternate prime universe in which, <laughs> you know- um, Not necessarily. If you look at the mirror universe and the prime universe as entangled dimensions of the same expression of a universe within a 10 dimensional construct, if they're entangled together, uh, then you wouldn't necessarily have to create a new prime. You would then have a quantum branch with a new prime and a new mirror equally entangled, but now off on a quantum. Right. I, I just meant I just meant that it would be different prime, David, because you know the events oh, yeah. in this mirror universe were different. Stamets was killed in a mirror. Stamets was killed in sure. a different way. Um, you know, mirror mirror Burnham died in a different circumstance. And if you change the way sooner. the future of the mirror universe um, unfolds, then yeah, right. So then, if mirror Stamets isn't around to mess with the mycelial network, then everything happens differently in season one. Right. You know what I mean? So that that was all. That was my the purpose of asking that question. <laughs> it's, um, well, but this episode also established that the mirror universe is essentially no different than the Kelvin universe. They're all just various parallel universes. So if the, this test was anything, was anything more real than just a simple test, then it by definition would have created mm. essentially a second mirror universe because she made changes. And so there's mirror one and mirror two with mirror two being the universe that spawned off of whatever Giorgio changed. Or for all we know, the whole thing happened in her head. And who will she be in that universe? I think is this well, very extreme, yeah. it's an extremely but, important but, question because she's- Well, she's not going in, back to it though, but she's, she's never going back. Well, she's shown incredible uh, changes now, which uh, I mean, how are these changes motivated and how do we believe that they are going to be real? How do we know that 
how do we know what to think? And is, is this next series going to be her being a total bitch again? Because in that case, that will be very difficult to like her. I mean, you can like someone as much as like, whoa, go, you know, bad girl. But that's really not a great role model. Well, they, they, they want her to be a, a lovable, tough rogue with a heart of gold. She's, lovable you know, how? 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 Well, I don't, I don't know how they're... But they, they, this it's whole a common season, policy of TV. A character does not need to be likable. They need to be interesting. Well, I agree with that. I mean, otherwise, shows like Breaking Bad would not work. Well, but if you look, if you compare Georgia, Tony Soprano is—he's likable to a point. He's also brutal and violent, and but what what makes him compelling is he's interesting. Is he has layers? Well, but I think I mean, it's season two. Georgia is very different than season three. Georgia, she's no longer brutally. She's no longer sadistic. She now cares about things and. you know, so I she's not going to go back and try to, you know, turn the Federation into her personal empire through murder. Um, Good, because that's not very Star Trek. I'm just trying to navigate that's, that's what true. exactly are what, our credos. What what do what, we still? What are we? What are we doing? I think that my thing with this is that, like, I was thinking, I felt similarly to you, Chase. Is like I've always sort of struggled with how to feel about Giorgio, and David brings up a really smart point too. It's like kind of like a Darth Vader fallacy. Like we just forgive this person because they like said two or three things and then now you know adam driver at the end of the rise of skywalker oh he seems all right now he's got a nice sweater you know like um so i think that there is that fallacy that i so but this is the way that i so this is the mental gymnastics that i did for myself is i was like (laughs) i imagined the exact same plot line but if it were mere universe spock from TOS or if a mirror universe Spock from Ethan Pe- by Ethan Peck was played and was became a refugee in our universe or, you know, mirror universe Kira from DS nine became a refugee in our universe and then had to go undergo change. Would I have accepted that eventually? And the answer is I probably would have. Um, and the reason why is because I got so much more time with their prime universe companions. Georgia is a weird case. And I think that Tony, you're dead right to say that, there seems to be a conflation sometimes of us loving Michelle Yeoh as this wonderful actress who was in all these wonderful films, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I just watched Tomorrow Never Dies the other day. She's wonderfully funny in that. Um, I, <laughs> love, I love her in Tomorrow you know, Never Dies. You know, like, it, but I, I think that it's a it's odd because we've mostly seen evil Giorgio. And so I think that right. if it had been Mira Kira, you know, and Nana Visitor played her and she was in a new Star Trek show, I think we'd probably accept a show around that. Um, or or Mirlita, perhaps. <laughs> you know, I think well, it's just it's like, we've mostly seen Mir Giorgio is the issue. It's when you when someone you really love and know does something mm. horrific, then you go, well, wait, that's not who they are, because we know who they are, and everybody messes up. So as long as they can own it, we love them. And as Heather brought up earlier, that's redemption when someone can admit their mistakes and work on being a better person or mm-hmm. at, you know at, at least the problem is that atonement their, is not, uh, is not a, a destination that you reach it's a new path you choose to walk you, you never is, really finish but, the journey right but as ryan was saying we don't it's not like oh well we know her and love her and she messed up once it's like she is a monster and she was yeah. nice once so how are we going to navigate this into? Well, I, I'm not saying it's a bad idea. Go, it could go, be Heather, Heather, interesting, as David I'm gonna, said. I'm, I'm going to get Heather's what... insight really quick. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, um, I do think this is a case where the actress was hired and the um, reception of the actress being in the show and the fan involvement there helped kind of power forward. And I could be totally wrong because I'm not behind the scenes anywhere, but we get, we get a, um, a spinoff series. That's really more about Michelle Yeoh than I think is about Giorgio in section 31. And I could be totally mm-hmm. wrong there, but I do think that the new season will take, t- at least I hope that it would take time to, better tell the story of her understanding where she's done wrong and dealing with that. Uh, Discovery definitely did better this season with like talking about mental health. Um, yeah. And I, I kind of expect they will do something like that, but then in the back of my head, I'm thinking, Oh, it's going to be like, uh, I always think of Bashir's episode where, where he was like the bond type character. Our man Bashir. Um, yeah. Yeah. And just like something fun, I feel like this show will be 
lighthearted, but sexy in the way Star Trek is now still with this journey. But as we've seen with everything so far, like there, there are certain specifications to what TV is right now. And if we got 24 episodes of Discovery, we would have gotten a lot more of Giorgio. And that's just not how it is. So yeah, good point. We'll, we'll see like that's it's I'm glad she gets the series so that we can explore that character and then also further explore that question of atonement and, and watching someone go through that because even with me like you yeah. get caught up in like who deserves redemption when that necessarily isn't for us to determine um we decide I that ourselves yeah and i yeah. we could see her take that journey and that would be really amazing um but i well, honestly we, we, don't know what to expect i think a lot of it will depend on what her motivation is in the new show what it what are her goals is, yeah. she, mm -hmm. is she is she a secret agent working for section 31 trying to save the federation but using you know illegal fascist techniques yeah you know and um is it all and justifies the means um mm -hmm. That's section yeah. 31. That's yeah. why I, I don't understand why they settled on that as a series concept. I'm never going to understand. I'm not convinced that it section is section 31. 31. Is the enemy. Be very I'm not the enemy. enemy. I think it's, I, I think it's a dummy I title. I, think I, it's a dummy I title. agree. This, I, I hope so. it, it, on my other Sorry, podcast, no. we, we, we were talking, we were talking about this a few weeks ago and I, I've come to believe that this the show is not the Section 31 show. It's the Michelle Yeoh show. They decided to do the show during season one of Discovery. Where, where After they killed off the character, they decided they were going to... She went to Alex Kurtzman and says, I love Star Trek. I want, you know, I want to stay with Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And they decided to do a show around her. Then they decided to bring her back using the Mirror Universe as a vehicle... I feel like they somewhat painted themselves into a corner by making her as evil as they did. And now they've slowly been trying to back out of that corner. If you look, I mean, she, the way she is written in season three from the, her first scene was different. So mm -hmm. they knew, they, they knew that they, the, the, those later episodes of season two, you know, were just, she was so over the top and so corrupt. So over the top, so monstrous. It, it, it's hard to even approach something like that. It's just one note, you know? The thing, but what's really shocking about this, you know, you say the writing changed at the beginning of season three, but really how much time has elapsed narratively? What, a matter of days? Not, a matter of weeks? Suddenly she's gone through this massive personality Going through a wormhole makes all, you different, David. I guess it does. Like, going through wormholes makes you crazy. Having a lot, your a lot. molecules, I guess, pulled farther from your home universe, you know, causes self-reflection. Or makes you, in this case, makes you nice. A lot of the characters changed in season three. Um, and Michael's the only one who has a reason. But they, they, the mm -hmm. show, is, show is a lighter tone for the most part. Um, you know, the, a lot of stuff has happened off screen. The characters seem to care about each other more. Characters that had no interaction, like Culber and Michael, are suddenly really close. You know, so none of this makes sense, but they, they wanted to make all the characters more likable, more interesting. And uh, so they changed Except the characters. Except for Giorgio. Yeah. Well, well, so, yeah. We, well, we all accepted that Khan remembered Chekhov, even though he wasn't in Space Seed. So many things <laughs> happen off screen. Um, before we yeah. before we wrap up and before Chase, we introduce the Disco Science Minute. I just wanted to uh, mention uh, something that's interesting about this episode uh, for those listening out there and want to do more research and homework, as we mentioned at the top of the episode that uh, Harlan Ellis and David pointed out, uh, ended up doing an adaptation with IDW Comics of City on the Edge of Forever, and that was his original script. And in that, you will find that there was a mere universe concept in the original script for City on the Edge of Forever. So that's been slightly folded into Discovery Season 3 as well. Um, when the original version of Harlan Ellis and City on the Edge of Forever, Kirk and Yeoman Ran beam up and discover um, the Condor a pirate ship uh, that has been created by the temporal incursion caused by um, the uh, uh, character um, Beckwith. Can, help me out, Tony. Is that right? Uh, the Harold Nelson drug dealer character um, who goes back in time. Bones yeah, did it, not go back in time in the original City on the Edge of Forever script. Um, so, there were also drugs. Yes. Sorry. That's... Space <laughs> drugs. 
the spice must it's, flow. It's, uh, it started as space drugs. The first version was space drugs. Then it was like some weird creature bit McCoy. They got rid of the Beckwith characters. I mean, right. they, there's so many drafts. They kept on changing it. But that first one, I mean, I hate to say this, but, you know, when you read that first one, you think there's some great ideas in here, but... You know, but how the hell were they supposed to produce the, ver- the version we got? Yeah. Is the, so the version we got, I think, is the great version, the one that was partially rewritten by you know Dorothy Fontana and others. So what I wanted to do before we ended today and um, is sort of get a one-shot answer from all of you as to we got the Guardian of Forever back, we got time travel. Why this season of Discovery is obsessed with time travel and parallel universes? Uh, Star Trek's most famous and best episodes in one sentence. Why is Star Trek? so popular and exciting when it does time travel in parallel dimensions that time travel creates. Why does it go to that? Well, over space travel, almost every, any day of the week, a great Star Trek story um, will, um, or a famous one perhaps will involve time travel. Why do you all think that is? Well, I, I think one of the strongest human emotions is regret. And people love the idea of having another, another chance, another do over whether it's a historic do-over like killing Hitler or going back and giving yourself a different chance with those Nausicans. You know, it's just people have regrets. I think there's also something to be said for the epic quality of a narrative that's unfolding on multiple levels of time uh, as well as in different locations. Uh, I think it just, it it adds a, a level of complexity that, you know, can take a story up a level. I, I, I don't know how to top those two things. Um, I think that there's something magical about it and that it's something that we use sparingly in Star Trek to the point that some people don't like it being there at all. Um, but I do. I think it opens up another world and opportunities for us to tell stories. And just because we don't time travel right now in those ways doesn't mean we want in the future. Hmm. Absolutely. All great answers. I I very much agree with Anthony, particularly about the issue of regret. I also think on a different level, it's interesting to see these characters who we know and love so well experience our world as 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 freshly as they do stepping in with the wisdom and the technology of the future, but as basically as 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 innocence in, in our world, as um, uh, with some naivete, with not understanding this or that, these basic things about our world, and it makes us think twice about things that we take for granted. Um, there's a certain charm about that, and I think there's also a, a, just a, a fun relief about these out-of-pocket episodes that, oh, we get to do something new this week. Um, but it's really fun to see characters we know so well in new situations where they have really have to gather their wits about them in our world that we that we know well and they don't i think that's wonderful um chase i want to um i want to thank all of our guests before we intro introduce the the disco science minute um but very briefly um thank you so much uh to david mack anthony pascal uh, Heather Ray, and of course my co-host Chase Masterson. Um, we've had a lively, intense, uh, knives out discussion about the Guardian Forever in the Mirror Universe, appropriate for these uh, these uh, fisticuffs episodes that we just experienced. And it was a wonderful conversation. And we thank you as always um, for you, listening Ryan to, um, to Disco Nights. Chase, can you tell us about the Disco Science Minute? Absolutely. Thank you all. And thank you so much, Ryan, for putting this all together and bringing it home. Our Science Minute is brought to you by our non-practicing astrophysicist and PhD student. She is the series of Pandora Science Advisor. That's Pandora on the CW. And she is our science correspondent. Give it up and let's hear now from at J.D. Voyek. Hello, listeners. It's J.D. Voyk, back with your moment of disco science. This week, Giorgio offers up some motivational wisdom, saying that even the darkest night will end and the sun will rise. Little does Giorgio, or rather the writers that put the words in that character's mouth, know, I'm going to take that literally to give you some commentary on some of the cases where, in fact, a sun will never rise. Let's get the obvious out of the way. Stars die, some quite dramatically. 
Our sun would need to be about eight times more massive to go supernova, but that doesn't mean it's going to be a quiet death. I mean, it will be quiet because sound has a very difficult time traversing the near vacuum of space, but I mean it won't be quiet in a less literal way. After it runs out of its primary fuel source, our sun is going to balloon out into a red giant and consume Mercury and Venus and possibly the Earth in the process. Astronomers aren't completely sure about our planet's exact fate, but it's certainly going to be fried by the intense radiation. But even if the Earth survives that catastrophe, the sun will begin a period of mass loss, shedding its outer layers as the core contracts into a dense white dwarf. That mass loss means that the sun, or what's left of it, won't be exerting the same gravitational effect on all of the stuff that's orbiting in it. That will throw the remaining planets and the other space junk's orbit all out of whack, sending some crashing down into the sun and others flinging out into the void of interstellar space. Astronomers have indeed found some planets floating out there, untethered to any particular star. These are called rogue planets, and they're thought to have been kicked out of their stellar systems either as a star dies, or when the star was just a baby, and the formation and migration of other planets jostled this rogue out of the system entirely. So those solitary worlds will never see another sunrise. But there are plenty of worlds which will never see a sunrise because it never sets. From Earth, we can only see one side of the moon. It wobbles a little bit, so over time we do see more than exactly half of it, but you get the idea. It's a phenomenon called tidal locking, because it's the result of millions of years of gravitational tidal forces that slowly change the rotation rate of both bodies. And for planets beyond our solar system, which are super close to their stars, they can also be tidally locked. One side of the planet is perpetually bathed in the star's light, the other has plunged into an internal night. Astrobiologists have hypothesized that this doesn't preclude a world from being habitable, as long as that life hangs out basically in that sort of transition zone. Of course, if you wanted to see the sun appear to rise on such a world, you could always take a road trip from the night side into the day. A lot of those planets don't have surfaces because they're gas giants, but no one said that the road had to be pavement-based. But there will come a time, dear listener, when there will never be another sunrise in this universe, because there will never be another sun. Like, way far out in the future. The kind of time frame only theoretical cosmologists care about. There will come a point where there just isn't enough gas in a region of space to collapse down into a blob capable of nuclear fusion. And thanks to that pesky dark energy causing our universe to expand faster and faster, Galaxies will be so far apart that there will never be another collision between two of them, which can jumpstart a period of star formation. One by one, the stars will die out, and if there manages to be any remaining life forms, they will eventually witness what will truly be the darkest night. But good news, taking it even further out in time, to the period of heat death, where the black holes have finished evaporating and the universe is basically an infinite box of single particles floating around, statistically speaking, there is a non-zero probability that random fluctuations will result in an arrangement identical to what we had during the Big Bang, the ultimate version of the monkeys in the room with the typewriters happening to churn out the complete works of Shakespeare. And with a new Big Bang, the cycle could start anew. New stars. New sunrises. So... On that happy-ish note, <laughs> I think we'll end. This has been J.D. Voik with your moment of disco science. Until next time. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.